Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. The Crisis Next Door, a weekly report on the biggest conflicts around the world with host Jason Brooks. Thanks for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. It's been about a year since a coalition of Kurdish and Arab soldiers defeated the Islamic State's last enclave in Syria, effectively ending the group's dreams of a caliphate. ISIS is hardly dead. It's still fighting in Syria, and it's branched out into new parts of Africa and Asia. While ISIS has been cast by many as a Middle Eastern problem, it's drawn recruits from all over the world, including hundreds from Southeast Asia, creating dilemmas for leaders in Indonesia and Malaysia. Joining the crisis next door to talk about repatriation and exclusion of ISIS fighters is Colin Clark, assistant teaching professor at Carnegie Mellon University's Institute for Policy and Research and a research fellow at the Sufan Center. Colin also authored After the Caliphate, The Islamic State and the Future Terrorist Diaspora. Colin, it's good to have you back on The Crisis Next Door. Thanks so much for having me, Jason. Colin, you took part in a collaborative project with David Gartenstein Ross and Samuel Hodgson in an examination of foreign fighters from Southeast Asia and what happens next. First, let's set the scene. How many fighters from that region traveled to Syria to join the Islamic State, and where did they come from? Yeah, well, uh, hundreds, uh, if not more. I mean, um, you know, we're talking about 700 uh, from Indonesia alone, um, and actually quite more if you consider all the people that were killed uh, or captured over there. So yeah, the, the numbers are, are quite high from Indonesia, the Philippines, Malaysia, Singapore, and elsewhere. Um, and with the fall, we're, we're almost about a year out from the fall of Bagus last March. Um, and I think in, in many ways, states like those mentioned in Southeast Asia are trying to get a hold of the problem, right? Who's coming back? Um, who's gone to kind of third-party countries, and what the general state um, of play is here. And, and again, it varies between those countries. What has been the draw to the Islamic State for these fighters from Malaysia and Indonesia? Well, I think, you know, the, the attraction to the, to the Islamic State for fighters from Indonesia and Malaysia is the same basket of factors and variables that has attracted foreign fighters, you know, 40,000 uh, from 80 different countries. Uh, you know, so uh, it's a sense of adventure, a sense of being part of this, this caliphate. Uh, and for a long time, the fact that the group was successful um, waging war because success is always sexy for a potential terrorist recruit. Um, and, you know, while in the, the Western media, we tend to focus a lot on the, the beheadings and the other terrible uh, things that this group did, the lion's share of their media actually you know, talked about fellowship and focused on positive things like schools and hospitals and 
building the this actual Islamic state. And so I think, by and large, that attracted um, at least, you know, particularly for the families, the the wives and um, and the kids. And uh, so there's a whole range of things that lead people to join terrorist groups. Um, it would be much easier if we could boil it down to you know one or two, but it's but it's an entire kind of um, you know portfolio of things that uh, initially attracts people. Indeed, thousands of foreign fighters were captured after the fall of the Islamic State's last stronghold in Syria. And the question facing many countries is what to do with them. Indonesia's government originally was going to repatriate around 700 citizens who had joined jihadist groups in the Middle East and then pulled a 180 and decided not to have them back. What does this mean for those fighters? Where do they go? That's a great question. Yeah, I mean, um, that's all just recent. So I think some of them will likely be dealt with uh, by by the SDF, by the Kurds. Um, you know, they'll either be put in jail um, or some kind of detention camp. The the big concern is that you know this is a big fat target for for ISIS, right? If they can kind of engineer some kind of a prison break, as we've seen them do before, you know, they had something called the break the breaking the walls campaign, uh, where uh, they were able to kind of uh, help spring these fighters from from prisons and jails, and so. There's concern over that. Where could they go? They could go anywhere. They could stay in the region. Um, they could attempt to return home, or they could go and join existing civil wars and insurgencies in places like Libya, the Sinai in Egypt, uh, or Afghanistan. And in fact, we've seen fighters from Southeast Asia making their way back to Afghanistan um, and uh, linking up with the Islamic State Khorasan province. It's interesting you mentioned the prison aspect. Some people may think, well, hey, We'll just imprison the captured returnees and all will be fine. But that's not the case, is it? Your research really does find that the message they carry from the battlefields still resonates from behind bars. Yeah, the messages still resonate. And you have to remember that these are individuals that now are battle-hardened. They've gained experience. Uh, they've received training. There's likely some form of PTSD that's involved, given all the terrible things that they've witnessed and perhaps participated in. So we're talking about um, a much different profile of a person you know, returning home to Indonesia or the Philippines than the one who initially left. They also have a broader network of like-minded terrorists to call upon um, should, should they need to. How strong are current jihadist networks in Southeast Asia? Does ISIS have established affiliates? Do the various jihadist groups work together? Or are there rivalries much like between ISIS and al-Qaeda? Well, it's complicated. So I think the, the networks are strong and quite robust. Um, but at the same time, there is a lot of kind of infighting and division amongst these groups. Uh, there's longstanding groups in the region like uh, Abu Sayyaf group and Jama Islamiyah, and it's kind of offshoots and splinters that have maintained a longstanding presence. Um, there's there's other groups like Jama Ashuru Daula, JAD. Um, and so there's no shortage of, of groups or organizations for these fighters to roll back into if they are able to make it back to uh, to the area. And you have to also think about the terrain and the geography, right? Um, and a lot of the archipelagos down in, in this part of the world, extremely porous borders, maritime uh, borders, high rates of smuggling and trafficking, uh, you know, areas that are awash in weaponry. So it's really in many ways of quite an ideal uh, destination to wage a prolonged insurgency. How are Indonesia and Malaysia equipped to fight those insurgencies? I think, you know, it varies by country. So Indonesia is quite well-placed to deal with the threat. Uh, they have, you know, well-trained and, and well-resourced security forces. 
but at the same time, you know, they also, yeah, it's the world's most populous Muslim nation. So in terms of recruitment and some of the logistical aspects of, of foreign fighters, there's great concern there. Uh, and I think others like Malaysia are, are maybe less prepared to deal with the threat. And then I think on the other end of the spectrum, you've got the Philippines, which has, you know, mostly pursued a draconian scorched earth style counterinsurgency campaign. Uh, and that's been quite myopic. So it's basically trading short term security or at least the perception of short term security uh, for, you know, longer term threats um, and, and grievances that build with the way that Filipino security forces have interacted among local populations um, in and around places like Marawi and elsewhere. You bring up Philippines, and Manila certainly has been aggressive in that devastating battle for Marawi City in 2017. The jihadists, though, still operating in the country. What does that tell you about their will? And do you think Manila has another big fight on its hands? Yeah, it's, it's you know, it's interesting to think about the Philippines in particular because of all the, you know, the back and forth and the souring of relations between the Duterte administration and the U.S., uh, I think there's a fissure that's happening right around the time that, you know, the, the Filipinos could could use the United States the, the most in many ways. Uh, and there was a longstanding, you know, special forces presence down in, in, in that part of the world. And uh, we've long done building partner capacity and security, security cooperation uh, with Manila. So if that changes and there's somewhat of a power vacuum, you might see a resurgence of the Islamic State in the Philippines in particular. And some would argue we're seeing that already. Now, Duterte is certainly cozying up with China right now, but China's never really seemed to come out with any explicit plans to combat jihadism around the world. Do you think China would be a willing partner with the Philippines in trying to counter that insurgency in that country? I think the Chinese would be willing to sell technology, you know, surveillance technology, and some of the things that we've seen them employ in northwestern China and Xinjiang province where they've detained um, uh, estimates are between one and three million uh, Uyghurs. Uh, and so I think the Chinese are building an authoritarian kind of, um, you know, uh, a mini authoritarian state within a state. Uh, and they're happy to kind of roll that model out and, and sell that kind of infrastructure to like-minded states, whether they're authoritarian or, or democracies, at least in name. You're listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks, and we're talking about the return of ISIS fighters to Southeast Asia with Colin Clark, assistant teaching professor at Carnegie Mellon University's Institute for Policy and Research and a research fellow at the Sufan Center. Colin, has there been a significant rise in terror attacks in Indonesia and Malaysia? Yeah, so we've seen um, a kind of ebb and flow, uh, and uh, we've seen some some pretty surprising things in, in places like uh, Indonesia where we've had... Um, you know, families that were involved in some of these suicide attacks. Uh, I think for a while, uh, you know, the government was somewhat complacent that these people had left. Uh, they've gone to fight in Iraq and Syria, and we we're going to wash our hands of them. Uh, there was then the talk, as we uh, referenced a short while ago, of repatriating uh, somewhere on the odds of, of 700 fighters. And then I think, you know, there was clearly some kind of reticence there. It seems that Middle East terror methods are showing up in Southeast Asia, notably Wi-Fi triggered bombs. How important is that development for law enforcement and militaries in those countries? It's a significant development. And again, I'll go back to the uh, the issue of tacit knowledge transfer. 
there's only so much that you can learn by reading instructions on the internet. If you've actually had individuals that have gone trained uh, and learned how to do this in person and they can bring those skills back, we call it the train the trainer model and pass that knowledge on to others uh, within the country, then you're, you know, you've got some major concerns on your hands. It's interesting that command and control of terror operations can be very far away from where the attacks are being staged. Tell me about the role of virtual plotters. How effective are they? And does that tactic in any way make it harder to track down the organizers? For sure. And, and, you know, in some of the recent plots and attacks, we've seen high-ranking Indonesian ISIS fighters that have acted as virtual plotters, uh, where they recruit members and they coordinate operations in the region, you know, via online communications from Syria. Uh, and so that makes it very difficult uh, where you have, um, you know, individuals that are organizing suicide bombings in Jakarta, among other attacks, uh, and they're publishing online bomb making uh, instruction manuals in various Southeast Asian languages. Um, and so we're likely to see this uh, continue as a trend for the foreseeable future. Is there anything that Malaysia and Indonesia can learn from European nations regarding the return of foreign fighters to European soil? Yeah, so there's a lot of things, I think, to learn from the Europeans. And while some laws and authorities and policies may differ between Europe and Southeast Asia, I think the Europeans have really done a good good job of focusing on uh, resourcing the prosecution and judiciary, right? And to the extent that there's available battlefield evidence, uh, prosecuting individuals now uh, there's some pushback for folks that would say, well, the prison sentences aren't long enough and there's issues with prison radicalization. And I think both of those things are true. But to me, it's better than the alternative, which is leaving people uh, in, a, in a camp like Al Hole, uh, where you're essentially, you know, seating them. If you revoke someone's citizenship, you're essentially making them a citizen of, of one state. And that's the Islamic state. Uh, and it's frankly the opposite of what we want. It's easy for people to forget about the fact that there are a lot of families that have traveled with these foreign fighters to Syria. You've got wives and children. What happens to them? Yeah, so I I think, you know, wives and children have been lumped together in this kind of catch-all category. But I would uh, urge policymakers and others to kind of treat that as a case-by-case basis. Uh, Because there are some female ISIS being recruiters in their own right, but also in kind of uh, being critical for the logistics that go into planning attacks. I have a different take on, on children who I think, you know, wholesale should be repatriated and reintegrated in society. And I'm not naive to the challenges inherent in that. I mean, it's going to take, you know, a lot of resources to deal with them and to give them the treatment they need and to make sure that they become functioning members of society. Um, again, there's no good options here for a lot of these states, particularly those in, in you know, lesser developed countries that don't necessarily have Um, you know, the infrastructure in place to deal with this. Colin, is there anything to be hopeful for here? Or are we just in a long running phase where jihadists will stubbornly have their say in global affairs? I think, you know, jihadists are just uh, a fact of life, frankly. Uh, You know, the question is, how do you look at the threat, right? And I think in many ways, post 9-11, we've inflated the threat, right? The threat of terrorism writ large. And we've made it out to be this existential threat, which I don't think it is. Um, That said, it's more than just a nuisance. And so kind of calibrating the proper response, uh, something that that takes constant reassessment of empirical evidence and data. That's something we're getting better at collecting. Well, there's still something to be uh, desired in terms of sharing that information. Um, I think there's great promise in 
machine learning and artificial intelligence and kind of helping winnow out, uh, you know, signals from from noise. So I'm, I'm optimistic on that front. Uh, but I think, you know, we're going to be fighting low level intensity conflicts and, and um, insurgent campaigns for much of the foreseeable future, even as, uh, you know, strategic guidance in the United States says, you know, we're more concerned with great power conflict with Russia, China, Iran, North Korea. The pendulum has swung back in the other direction away from violent non-state actors and much more toward, um, you know, rogue states and so-called near peers. And Colin, we've talked about this before, uh, but the focus on Islamic jihadist fighters in particular has really seemed to overweigh the perceived threat of white supremacist radicals around the world. And we are definitely seeing an uptick in violence in white supremacist. And do you think this view of Islamic fighters has skewed a view towards white supremacist and where nations just aren't paying enough attention? Without a doubt. I, I think, you know, uh, clearly... Uh, the United States and others have overlooked this this threat from violent white supremacists. There's an assumption that they're, you know, we refer to them as domestic terrorists, and we assume that their motives are local and parochial in nature. Um, and the, the Sufan Center report that we published in September 2019, uh, you know, cuts against the conventional wisdom and shows that actually they are building transnational networks uh, with hubs in places like Ukraine and elsewhere. I think too often the, the media will jump to conclusions and say, you know, here's a lone wolf attack, uh, but there's this kind of support or infrastructure, uh, you know, this broader network in place that uh, these individuals kind of come from. Uh, and that doesn't always have to be uh, support in terms of providing weapons or financing. It could be propaganda or, or things of that nature. And it certainly seems as if the white supremacists have learned a thing or two from the Islamic jihadists when it comes to social media and recruitment and, and those types of things. Yeah, and they, they do learn from each other. And in fact, there's this strange admiration on the part of white supremacists of jihadis. They use pictures of bin Laden in some of their propaganda. And you even have a group that's named the base, which is what al-Qaeda is translated to um, when, when Arabic is translated into English. So um, more than just ironic on that front. A fascinating relationship, to be sure. Colin, thank you so much for joining us here again on The Crisis Next Door. Really appreciate you having me. We've been joined by Colin Clark, assistant teaching professor at Carnegie Mellon University's Institute for Policy and Research and a research fellow at the Sufan Center. Colin also authored After the Caliphate, The Islamic State and the Future Terrorist Diaspora. Thanks for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. Till next time. The Crisis Next Door with host Jason Brooks is produced weekly. If you have any thoughts for Jason, email him at tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. Again, that's tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See t